I wasn't a political person until I found a candidate that I really liked, and his name is Donald J. Trump. He was someone I could relate to. I enjoyed his plain talk, not not the offensive things, but just the way he <laughs> talked normally. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am, stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California, on KFOI, Red Bluff Redding, KKRN, Round Mountain, KGOE, Eureka. In Oregon, on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove, KEPW in Eugene. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP. Rochester, New York, WRFZ. New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV. In Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ. Seattle, Washington, KODX. In Janesville, Wisconsin, we're on WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the interwebs on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk blanketing the globe five days a week, usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. But today you got me. I'm Nicole Sandler. I host the Nicole Sandler Show, which is based at nicolesandler.com. And always happy to be filling in for Brad and Desi, especially when there's so much going on. There's a lot of news to catch up on, and we'll get there in a moment. Let me tell you about our guest today, though. Craig Unger is the author of six books, including House of Trump, House of Putin, and House of Bush, House of Sod. And the new one, just released last week, is called American Compromot, How the KGB Cultivated Donald Trump and Related Tales of Sex, Greed, Power, and Treachery. So yes, we will turn our attention to Russia yet again. But first, let's get to the news, because it's been kind of busy around here especially Thursday. Wow, what a nonstop day that was. And for the Senate, it didn't end until Friday morning at 5.35 a.m. Yep, they pulled an all-nighter. That's when Vice President Kamala Harris showed up to perform her first official duty as Senate president, breaking a tie. On this vote, the yeas are 50, the nays are 50, the Senate being equally divided, The vice president votes in the affirmative, and the concurrent resolution as amended is adopted. The approval came after a 15-hour vote-a-rama, during which senators pushed through dozens of amendments. Now the bill goes back to the House, which passed its budget bill on Wednesday, and is expected to act quickly on the Senate bill. Once the budget resolution is finalized... Over the next couple of weeks, the House and Senate will craft the actual coronavirus package and insert that into the budget reconciliation measure, thereby avoiding a filibuster. Under the reconciliation rules, the Democratic majorities in both chambers will be able to push through the relief package with simple majorities, with or without Republican votes. Democrats are hoping to pass this relief legislation by mid-March. So while that was going on in the Senate on Thursday, the House was voting to strip Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene of her committee assignments due to her past comments spreading violent and hateful conspiracy theories and worse. Before the vote, though, there was a lengthy debate featuring some powerful testimony, including from Ms. Greene herself. Let's start with some of her statements like, well, (laughs) uh, this. I never, ever considered uh, to run for Congress or even get involved in politics. As a matter of fact, I wasn't a political person until I found a candidate that I really liked, and his name is Donald J. Trump when he ran for president. (laughs) To me, he was someone I could relate to, someone that I enjoyed his plain talk. What? Not not the offensive things, but (laughs) just the way he talked normally. And the way he talked normally was offensive. 
But I guess that appealed to her. You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene is known for being a 9-11 truther and for claiming that the school shootings, most notably the one in Parkland at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School and in Newtown, Connecticut at Sandy Hook Elementary, were false flags. But on Thursday, she said... I also want to tell you 9-11 absolutely happened. Oh, really? That day, crying all day long, watching it on the news. And it's a tragedy for anyone to say it didn't happen. Yeah, well, you did. Yeah, she said numerous occasions that uh, there's no evidence that any plane ever flew into the Pentagon. And what about those school shootings? You see, school shootings are absolutely real. Wow. And every child that has lost, those families mourn it. Those families mourn it? Is she referring to human beings as it? She actually went on to invoke the name of David Hogg, one of the Parkland survivors, who she famously harassed and mocked. I know the fear that David Hogg had that day. I know the fear that these kids have. And this is why, and I say this sincerely with all my heart, because I love our kids, every single one of your children, all of our children. I truly believe that children at school. Yeah, children are our future. I've heard the song, too. Um, Then why is there video footage online of Marjorie Taylor Greene following, harassing and haranguing David Hogg not too long after the shooting happened three years ago in Washington, D.C., when he was there to talk with senators about gun control laws? This woman speaks out of both sides of her mouth like this one. This might be my favorite quote from her from this speech. That was supposed to be an apology, but was nothing of the sort. The woman who's wearing face masks that claims she's censored or, you know, we're infringing on her free speech. She actually said a lot of Americans don't trust our government. And that's sad. The problem with that is, though, is I was allowed to believe things that weren't true. And I would ask questions, questions about them and talk about them. I was allowed to believe things that aren't true. Who's going to stop you from believing you believe things that aren't true every day? You spout things that aren't true. She was allowed to believe things that aren't true. I'll tell you what. She could have listened to my show. She could have listened to the broadcast and she'd find out very quickly all the things that she says that aren't true. But she takes her cues from Donald Trump, the biggest liar that this country has ever seen on the national stage. And she has taken up the mantle. Because everything that comes out of this woman's mouth is also a lie. She was allowed to believe things that aren't true. I'm, I have no words. And if that wasn't enough for you, well, have a listen to this bit of brilliance. And I thought, finally, maybe this is someone that will do something about the things that deeply bother me. Like the fact that we're so deeply in debt that our country has murdered over 62 million people in the womb. Huh? What? So deeply in debt that we've murdered 62 million people in the womb. What is she talking about? Uh, Never mind. I I, I don't want to know. But there was other testimony on Thursday in the House as they were debating before voting on whether or not to strip Marjorie Taylor Greene of her committee assignments. And I was frankly pleasantly surprised by Steny Hoyer. Yeah. House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer brought a poster, an enlargement of a Facebook post by Marjorie Taylor Greene with a picture of her holding an AR-15 aimed at AOC, Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar. He carried it over to the Republican side of the chamber to make sure they could all see the image that he was talking about. Mr. Speaker, I urge my colleagues to look at this image. I heard about motherhood today. Two of those women between them have six children. They're mothers. One of them does not have children. And she's come to this body asking for more housing for people, for more health care for people, for more income for people. How awful. And they're not the squad. They're Elon. They're Alexandria. They're Rashida. They are people. They are our colleagues. And yes, you may have disagreements. And this is an AR-15 in the hands of Miss Green. This was on Facebook just a few months ago. Well, Green's contrition wasn't enough for the Democrats, who said her embrace of the bogus QAnon conspiracy theory and her social media posts approving violence against prominent Democrats were the type of rhetoric that fueled the deadly January 6th attack on the Capitol. 
When it was all over, 11 Republicans joined all the Democrats in the 230 to 199 vote that stripped Green of both of her committee assignments. These votes were, as all full House floor votes are, roll call votes. So you know how each member of Congress voted. It's on the record. Different results from their vote on Wednesday regarding Liz Cheney's future in Republican leadership. When it was a secret ballot, Republicans overwhelmingly supported Liz Cheney and kept her in the number three spot in House leadership for the Republican Party, despite her vote to impeach Trump. But when their votes were disclosed, as in the case of Marjorie Taylor Greene, it seems that many of them suddenly lose their spines. The final vote was 230 to 199, with only 11 Republicans voting with all the Democrats to strip Greene of her committees. Meanwhile, Donald Trump's impeachment trial begins next week. House impeachment managers, led by Congressman Jamie Raskin, requested that Trump testify, but his legal team quickly rejected the invitation, arguing that since Trump is now a private citizen, the proceedings are unconstitutional. House impeachment managers could try to subpoena Trump, but both parties are pushing for a speedy trial, so it might be difficult to get the Senate majority required to do that. The impeachment officially gets underway on Monday, the trial beginning on Tuesday. But I want to go back to the House of Representatives for a moment, because after the vote on Marjorie Taylor Greene, there was one more order of business. And this was organized by Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Perhaps you saw her compelling and terrifying account of her experience on January 6th during the Capitol siege. Well, she encouraged others to tell their stories, too. I'll have details on that for you next. Don't go away. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Hi, this is Brad. My thanks to those who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to sign up for a subscription to the Bradcast of any amount you like. We rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please grab a subscription at bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today. By now, I hope you got to see the Instagram live stream or recording of it that AOC recorded. It was Monday night when she told her story, what ha- what she experienced during the maggot insurrection at the Capitol. It was frightening. It was compelling. I, I sat up until the wee hours of the morning Monday watching the thing. Or uh, Monday night, Tuesday morning. And then I couldn't sleep because it stayed with me. I think that was really important that people got to hear what she experienced. If you didn't get to hear it, here's a little bit of it. First, she gave a little background and explained that she was the victim of sexual abuse. Not, Not on the 6th of January, but in the past. And, you know, that leaves you with lasting trauma. So she was on edge. And by the way, she got emotional talking about that, saying this is nothing that she's shared with most people. So she's bearing her soul. So she already had a bit of uh, probably post-traumatic stress from that, from being, you know, from being assaulted. And then she talks about she was hiding. She was in her office and they heard somebody pounding on doors in the hallway, screaming, where is she? Where is she? And so she hid and she hid in the back bathroom in her office, like way in the back. And she went behind the door. So when the door swung open, she was between the wall and the door. And this man who was screaming, where is she? Had pushed open the door. So she was in that very position. Like I'm here and the bathroom door starts going like this. Like the bathroom door is in front of me and I'm like this and the door hinges right here. And I just hear, where is she? Where is she? And um, this was the moment where I thought everything was over. It felt like my brain was able to have so many thoughts in that moment um, between these screams and these yells of where is she? Where is she? I mean, I thought I was going to die. 
And I had a lot of thoughts. You have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> I think when you're in a situation like that, and I really just felt like, you know, if this is the plan for me, then people will be able to take it from here. I had a lot of thoughts, but that was the thought that I had about you all. I felt that if this was the journey that my life was taking, that I felt that things were going to be okay. Wow. Wow. So this is what she went through, what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez went through on January 6th when these this mob descended on the Capitol building and they were out for blood. So I think hearing her story was so important. And obviously, she's probably heard from many of us who told her the same thing. So what AOC did was she put together what's called a special order hour on the House floor that happened Thursday night after the vote to expel Marjorie Taylor Greene from the committees she's on. Uh, And obviously, between that and everything going on in the Senate, this kind of fell through the cracks of news coverage. But I think I want to share a few of these um, stories with you, because we need to remember that this is the reason Donald Trump is being impeached again. He incited those people to storm the Capitol. They killed five people, including a cop, injured many others seriously, and They terrorized Congress. Now, the Republicans may want to gloss over the worst day ever in congressional history, but really, it's a day that we never thought we'd ever see when a crazed armed mob storms the Capitol looking to overthrow the government or overturn the results of a Democratic election. This is what they are going to impeach Donald Trump or they're going to um, try Donald Trump in the Senate for after being impeached for a second time. Everyone needs to hear these people who are there for us. So in kicking off this hour on the House floor Thursday night, here's a little bit of what AOC said. Sadly, less than 29 days later, with little to no accountability for the bloodshed and trauma of the 6th, Some are already demanding that we move on, or worse, attempting to minimize, discredit, or belittle the accounts of survivors. In doing so, they not only further harm those who were there that day and provide cover for those responsible, but they also send a tremendously damaging message to survivors of trauma all across this country, that the way to deal with trauma, violence, and targeting is to paper it over minimize it, and move on. Sadly, this is all too often what we hear from survivors of trauma as the reason why they don't get care, that what they experienced wasn't bad enough or too bad to talk about, or that they are afraid of being invalidated, accused of exaggeration, or making a mountain out of a molehill. As a result, thousands, if not millions, deny themselves the care that they need and deserve the care that they need and deserve to live better lives. 29 days ago, our nation's capital was attacked. That is the big story. And in that big story reside thousands of individual accounts, just as valid and important as the other. Tonight, for this special order, we will begin to hear and commit to the congressional record just some of those many stories. I thank my colleagues who have bravely come forward today to share their accounts. I think she's amazing, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So next, let's hear from one of the freshmen. Cory Bush is uh, the, the freshman congressman from the St. Louis, Ferguson, Missouri area. She's an activist and uh, well, I'll just let her speak. This is Cori Bush's story of her experience on January 6th. I remember sitting up in the gallery, listening to floor speeches, knowing that there was supposed to be a protest happening outside, seeing people outside, and thinking that this was just part of the day until something happened. 
and I just just felt the need to stand up and walk out. I walked out and I went down a flight and I went to the steps and I went to look to see what's happening outside and I saw the tip top of flags. And then I saw more of the flags and I could read words. And then after I could read words, I could see people. And then I realized that people were approaching. So I hopped on the nearest elevator and left and made it back to my office safely. And when we came back into our office, we walked in and we started to see on our, on our televisions people breaching doors. And I remember thinking, is this actually what's happening? The more I watched, and people were calling this a protest, let me say this, that was not a protest. I've been to hundreds of protests in my life. I've co-organized, co-led, led and organized protests, not only in Ferguson, Missouri, alongside the amazing Ferguson front line that most people don't even acknowledge. They don't even know their names. They don't even know who died. They don't even acknowledge the amazing people that put their lives and livelihoods on the line for our safety, believing that black lives matter because they actually do. And we shouldn't have to say it. It should just be true. But it's not evident in our society when we have to continue to say my life matters. And then they hit us with things like this. And so I remember sitting in the office with my team and just thinking to myself, I feel like I'm back at this very minute. I feel like I'm back. I feel like this was one of the days out there on the streets when the white supremacists would show up and start shooting at us. This is one of the days when the police would ambush us from behind trees and from behind buildings. And all of a sudden now we're on the ground being brutalized. It felt like one of those days. And I just remember taking a second thinking, if they touch these doors, if they hit these doors, the way they hit that door, if they hit these doors and come anywhere near my staff, and I'm just going to be real honest about it. My thought process was, we banging to the end. I'm not letting them take out my people, and you're not taking me out. We've come too far. So, Madam Speaker, St. Louis and I rise with a message for our Republican colleague. On January 6th, I thought about January 3rd, and I thought about how we all raised our right hands up and took an oath, each and every one of us. On this very floor, we swore that we would support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Even though that Constitution wasn't written for people who look like me, even that Constitution wasn't written by people who look like me, and even though that Constitution cemented and unjust nation for people like me. My team and I got to work and we unveiled legislation to investigate and expel those who were responsible for inciting this attack so that we could defend it because we have a duty to fight for a more perfect union. Because if we cannot stand up to white supremacy in this moment as representatives, then why did you run for office in the first place? No matter what district you represent, no matter where you live, no matter Democrat or Republican, you represent a district that is on average about 700,000 people, meaning you have to resent those who love you, those who despise you, those who voted for you, those who swear they'll never cast a vote for you, people who talk like you and people don't, who don't look like you. Building better communities, building better lives, building a better society. It's not a Democratic or Republican issue. We can't build a better society if members are too scared to stand up and act to reject the white supremacist attack that happened right before our eyes. How can we trust that you will address the suffering that white supremacy causes on a day-to-day -day basis in the shadows if you can't even address the white supremacy that happens right in front of you in your house? Does your silence speak to your agreement is the question. So on January 3rd, we stood together to swear our oath to office to the Constitution. We swore to defend it against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Well, it was attacked by a domestic enemy called white supremacy. And we must stand together now, today, to uphold that oath and hold every single person who helped incite it accountable. Thank you. And I yield back. Corey Bush, you might recall, had an office close to Marjorie Taylor Greene's and felt so threatened by her, being berated by her and her staff in the hallway, that she she asked Nancy Pelosi to please move her office. I don't know if she's already moved, but that is happening because she doesn't feel safe. Next, this is a guy who I had never heard of before. Congressman from Minnesota. His name is Dean Phillips. And listen to this story. And we know what it feels like thinking that it's a real possibility that we would not see our families and loved ones again. We won't forget. We won't forget. But I'm not here this evening 
to seek sympathy or just to tell my story, rather to make a public apology for recognizing that we were sitting ducks in this room as the chamber was about to be breached. I screamed to my colleagues to follow me, to follow me across the aisle to the Republican side of the chamber so that we could blend in, so that we could blend in. For I felt that the insurrectionists who were trying to break down the doors right here would spare us if they simply mistook us for Republicans. But within moments, I recognized that blending in was not an option available to my colleagues of color. So I'm here tonight to say to my brothers and sisters in Congress and all around our country, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. For I had never understood, really understood, what privilege really means. It took a violent mob of insurrectionists and a lightning bolt moment in this very room. But now I know, believe me, I really know. Wow. Everyone should hear that. That is Congressman Dean Phillips, Democrat from Minnesota. Again, these were just some of the floor speeches. About a dozen of them were made Thursday night at the House of Representatives, a session put together by AOC to let some of the members share their story of what they experienced the day they stormed the Capitol. And we're hearing over and over again, a lot of these people thought they were going to die. And keep that in mind when you know that the impeachment that begins on Monday, the majority of the Republicans on the jury, the Senate is the jury, have already said they, they will vote to acquit Donald Trump. There's something really wrong with that. I'm going to share one more story with you. And this is Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, known as one of the members of the squad from Michigan. Thank you so much to my colleague for her incredible courage. I asked her to go last because I get, um, because this is so personal. (laughs) This is so hard because as many of my colleagues know, my closest colleagues know, on my very first day, of orientation. I got my first death threat. It was a serious one. They took me aside. The FBI had to go to the gentleman's home. I didn't even get sworn in yet when someone wanted me dead for just existing. More came later, uglier, more violent. One celebrating and writing the New Zealand massacre and hoping that more would come. Another mentioning my dear son, Adam. (laughs) Mentioning him by name. Each one paralyzed me each time. (laughs) So what happened on January 6th, all I could do was thank Allah that I wasn't here. I felt overwhelming relief and I feel bad for Alexandria, so many of my colleagues that were here. But as I saw it, I thought to myself, thank God, I am not there. I saw the images that they didn't get to see until later. My team and I decided at that point, we'd keep the death threats away. We'd try to report them, document them, to keep them away from me because it just paralyzed me and all I wanted to do was come here and serve the people that raised me the people that told my mother who only had eighth grade education that she deserves human dignity, people that believed in me. And so it's hard. It's hard when my seven brothers and six sisters beg me to get protection, many urging me to get a gun for the first time. And I have to tell you, The trauma from just being here existing as a Muslim is so hard, but imagine my team, which I lovingly just adore. They are diverse. I have LGBTQ staff. I have a beautiful Muslim that wears her hijab proudly in the halls. I have black women that are so proud to be here to serve their country. And I worry every day for their lives because of this rhetoric. I never thought that they would feel unsafe here. And so I asked my colleagues to please try not to dehumanize what's happening. This is real. And you know, many of our residents from the shootings in Charlottesville to the massacre at the synagogue, all of it, 
All of it is led by hate rhetoric like this. And so I urge my colleagues to please, please take what happened on January 6th seriously. It will lead to more death and we can do better. We must do better. Thank you. These stories need to be told during the impeachment trial. The senators also, you know that some of them had these same experiences and how any of them can vote to acquit Donald Trump knowing that he incited that riot, that insurrection. He goaded those people into doing what they did. He can't get away with this because that would be getting away with murder. All right. Coming up next, we're going to delve into the Russia investigation. And it's real. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. The broadcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. All right, welcome back to the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today, and for Brad and Desi, who will be back for the next show and the beginning of the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump. Yeah, he's being impeached for inciting an insurrection. Good reason to impeach a president if there ever was one. So the first impeachment was very narrow. Remember, it came from his phone call to the Ukrainian president in which Trump tried to get President Zelensky to launch a bogus investigation into Trump's then perceived rival, Joe Biden, and attempting a quid pro quo arrangement. Of course, before that, there was a huge investigation into Trump's relationship with Russia and their attempts to disrupt the 2016 presidential election, the investigation conducted by special counsel Robert Mueller. Well, despite gaslighting by then-Attorney General Bill Barr, who gave a fake account of the findings weeks before the rest of us got to see what the report actually said, the investigation did find that the Russian government interfered in the 2016 elections in, quote, sweeping and systematic fashion and, quote, violated U.S. criminal law. But Robert Mueller declined to come to a conclusion about obstruction of justice on Trump's part, citing a decades-old rule not law, mind you, rule that prohibits the federal indictment of a sitting president. So that and Barr's fabricated summary of the findings gave Trump and his lemmings another lie to push, calling the entire investigation a hoax. Well, our guest today is here to tell us that there was nothing hoax-like about it. On the line right now is Craig Unger. He's the author of six books, the newest one just out. It's called American Compromat, How the KGB Cultivated Donald Trump and Related Tales of Sex, Greed, Power and Treachery. Congratulations on the book, Craig, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. And thank you for writing this. I want to start off by asking, there's a lot of disagreement on what what Trump called for years the Russia hoax. And it's not only him and some right wing crazy commentators who have an interesting relationship with the truth, but it, but many on the left as well, from Glenn Greenwald to Matt Taibbi to Stephen Cohn at The Nation, who say that the whole thing about Russia and Trump is nonsense. How do you re- react to that? Well, I'm a reporter and I say, look at the facts. And uh, I've thought of some of the people of the nation as colleagues for years, and I really don't understand what they're going on about. Uh, But what I did for the first time, I mean, we've heard hundreds of times that Trump is in Putin's pocket, that why is he doing this for Russia? The top intelligence officials of the pre-Trump era uh, have been almost unanimous in saying that he's a Russian asset, but no one is really going back to the origins. And if he was a Russian asset, I decided to talk to KGB people and see what really happened. And I go back to the beginning and trace the events that started more than 40 years ago about how they first reached out to Trump as an asset and began to cultivate him. 
40 years ago. So when I look back to 2014 and say that Eric Trump is on the record is saying they've got tons of money. They have access to all this money from Russia. They didn't need any U.S. banks or anything. That was late in the process. They already had the connections, as you said, going back decades. So when did they first make contact with Donald Trump? They, They targeted him as somebody who might be an asset here in the U.S.? Well, I report in American Compromise from discussions with a former KGB agent uh, named Yuri Schwitz that in 1980, uh, the first operation I know about tying Trump to the KGB took place in his first very successful development, the first one that was genuinely a success, which was the Grand Hyatt Hotel near Grand Central Station here in New York, Mm -hmm. and Trump needed TV sets for for his hotel, and he bought them, and this is odd because it's a Hyatt Hotel, a a blue chip franchise, and they end up getting their TV sets from a a little electronic store run by Soviet emigres. And what I found out for the first time was that those Soviet emigres uh, were tied to the KCB. And the man who went to Trump was known as a spotter agent for the KCB. He was there to recruit potential assets, find out if they were worth re- recruiting. And in selling those 200 TV sets for the first time, he was opening the doors of the KCB to Donald Trump. So this is a relationship that's been ongoing since then. And this is this is typical. The KGB would make contact with American uh, businessmen or people perceived to be in positions of power to cultivate relationships with them, thinking that years down the road that they'll be able to use them for something. Absolutely. And, I, you know, I grew up, I remember as a teenager, my favorite movie was A Manchurian Candidate. Sure. And you saw this great, great conspiracy and all that. And But what was happening here wasn't some a 40 year conspiracy of grooming. Uh, we're going to pick it in the next American president. It wasn't really like that. Uh, the Soviets were recruiting very, very widely, and they often went, went after uh, American influential American businessmen. And in fact, uh, a man named Arnold. Armand Hammer, he, he died a few years ago, but he was a uh, fabulously wealthy industrialist. He owned Occidental Petroleum, and he had all these special concessions with the Soviet Union. He was known as a special unofficial contact. That's a kind of an asset. Uh, there's a distinction between agents who are knowingly tasked with performing uh, special operations and reporting to handlers and assets who may uh, trade favors, they're trusted, they're reliable, but I scr- they'll, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. It's that kind of relationship. And we see that developing out of these events of 1980. Wow. And so, so fast forward now to Donald Trump's presidential campaign and, and the meeting that we later learned about at Trump Tower with um, uh, 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 what Natalia Veselnitskaya and the other uh, Russian operatives with with Jared Kushner and um, uh, others on the campaign staff. Um, if there was such a relationship going back so many decades, why why did it seem that these people were were kind of um, ancillary characters, if you will? I mean, ha- why why wouldn't it have been somebody who Trump had contact with over all these years who was working with him to try to get him elected? Well, there were an awful lot of people in, in, in involved in this, and it went from uh, one episode to, to the next. If you go to 1987, and I, I think this is one of the, the most uh, uh, the biggest revelations in my book uh, is that my uh, one of my sources, a man named Yuri Schwitz, who was a KGB agent who served in the Washington station of the KGB in the mid 80s, uh, when he went back to Russia, to the Soviet Union, rather, in 1987, Trump had just been to, uh, to Moscow. And while he was there, it appears he was being cultivated by the KGB and pumped full of talking points for the Soviet Union. And uh, in September of 1987, Yuri was at his offices in, uh, in Yasinevo, Russia. That's where... Uh, The first chief director of the KGB has its offices. And he got an internal memo uh, celebrating the acquisition of a new asset to the KGB, 
who had just successfully performed an so-called active measure. That's really propaganda. And attached to the memo was an ad. And it was taken out in the New York Times, Washington Post, and Boston Globe. And it was signed by none other than Donald Trump. And it had all these bizarre foreign policy talking points uh, that we should sort of uh, get out of NATO, we, that we shouldn't be f- so friendly with Japan, which, of course, has been a major ally for decades. Uh, and these were the KGB talking points. This was when Trump put out that ad and he was at the time exploring a presidential campaign. When he put that ad out, it was an active measure for the KGB. Wow. Now, you mentioned you talk about, you know, when Trump was first targeted by the the KGB uh, to cultivate him as a Russian asset. Um, uh, Craig Unger, what, what do you mean when you say Russian asset? Are you saying someone who will willingly or unwillingly do their dirty work? do their bidding? Well, well, he was willing. I guess I, I would uh, phrase it in terms of knowing. Was he know, witting or unwitting? Was okay. he, did he know what he was really doing and who he was working for or not? And Trump, uh, frankly, I think of him as a mobster more than anything else. And he's developed what in legal terms there's a phrase known as willful ignorance or deliberate <laughs> blindness. When you just turn the other eye because you don't want to know all the details. It'll just get you in trouble. And that's what you see happening again and again and again with Donald Trump, that at one point, a Russian Soviet emigre who had ties to the Russian mafia and therefore to uh, Soviet intelligence uh, just came into Trump Tower. He put five million dollars down and bought five condos. That's the equivalent of 15 million today. Wow. Well, Trump didn't inquire where you get the money. No, he he just turns his cheek, takes the money, and he, in the end, he does sells over 1,300 condos under similar conditions. That is anonymous transaction where the the beneficial owner is not known and all cash. So there's no trace <laughs> to the bank. Is that money laundering? I mean, is was that the beginning of a Russian money laundering scheme through Donald Trump? Absolutely. Those are the two predicates of money laundering. To pin it on Trump, uh, you have to kind of prove that Trump was knowing. Well, uh, getting inside his mind, as I say, is very difficult, but he did it at least 1,300 times, and that would suggest, oops, I launder money. You know, you don't make that mistake 1,300 times in a row. Uh, I think that's a pattern. Yeah, so we're speaking with Craig Unger. His latest book, the brand new one, is American Compromot, How the KGV Cultivated Donald Trump and Related Tales of Sex, Greed, Power, and Treachery. We're going to get to some of those tales in a moment. But uh, the book is wonderful. And in the middle, you have a, a pretty comprehensive photo section. And the first photo that, and there's some fascinating photos in here. Uh, the first one, though, is that famous or now infamous photo taken in the Oval Office with Trump, for Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov and um, and Ambassador Sergei Kislyak, which we learned later there were no U.S. Uh, government photographers there. The picture we saw of the very affable, friendly, kind of disturbing photograph in the Oval Office came from TASS, the Russian news agency. It was their propaganda photo. We knew there were problems before then, but was this, when you saw that, when you saw that news story, was that a an aha moment? Like, oh my God, what's this guy doing? Well, that, that was one, but it, I mean, the, the truth is there are many. And if you wonder what, uh, what does Putin have on Trump, all those discussions with Putin, some in, in, in real life where Trump tore up the translator's notes, some on the phone where they stashed uh, the transcript in a in a secret server that no one has had access to. Well, Vladimir Putin has the real stuff. Uh, there were a lot of communications uh, between Trump and Putin, and uh, Russia has those communications. They can hold them over Trump, mm. and uh, I suspect they're very, very damaging. You know, by the same token, today, yesterday, the day the book came out, <laughs> fortuitously, I guess, uh, was the first time that newly elected President Biden and Vladimir Putin spoke by phone 
during Biden's presidency. And yes, there was a there was an extensive readout released to the media. Um, Biden, uh, according to these notes, pressured Putin on all the issues that Trump never brought up from the accusations of a bounty, a Russian bounty on American soldiers in Afghanistan and on and on. Um, This is how it's supposed to be. This is not what we got during the Trump years, though. Absolutely. I mean, it's amazing how normalcy seems so bizarre now because we've been used to four years of utter secrecy with a president who is an asset of the Russian Federation. It is just bizarre. And uh, there's still a lot of unanswered questions here. And I, I think one of the things I'm trying to do in this book is show that if we don't get to the bottom of this, if there is not a fully detailed investigation, uh, it can happen again. I don't doubt the desire to launch an investigation on behalf of the Democrats and even the Biden administration. Do you think that such a undertaking will ever happen under the political constraints we operate now? Look, we saw yesterday uh, 45 out of 50 Senate Republicans are saying, no, you can't impeach him. That's unconstitutional because he's out of office, basically saying that any sitting president has free reign to break the law and do whatever they want and won't be held accountable. Do you think there can be in this climate a full investigation taken into Trump's relationship with Russia? Well, I'm somewhat dubious. I would love for it to happen. But as you say, there are real, real political obstacles and uh the midterms are just a little more than a year away. Uh, Will the Republicans retake Congress? I mean, that's very, very scary. Uh, I sure hope it, it, it takes place. And as a journalist, all I have is my phone. I don't have subpoena power. I have some wonderful, uh, a wonderful researcher assisting me who speaks Russian, but uh, it, it really requires uh, a serious investigation and bipartisan investigations tend to split the difference in a way. Uh, but we have to get to the bottom of this. We see how close we came to losing democracy. Biden's victory was wonderful and a major step forward. And, and so was taking the Senate. But we're, it's still hanging by a thread. Oh, very much so. So you talk about the the, the initial contact made by Russia to uh, Trump was back in the 80s. Well, that was that predates Vladimir Putin in terms of being president. I think he was at the KGB back then. But um, so this has gone on for decades now. Trump has had this fixation on Putin. He he said, oh, I know him well because we both appeared on the same episode of 60 Minutes, even though they never met. But but he's a good friend because they were together on that show, whatever the hell that means. What's with his fixation for Putin? And did he have that same fixation on the presidents who came before him? Well, I think he kind of wants to be Putin. Putin is a mobster. He really is. And if you look at what has happened to Russia, everyone was hopeful after the fall of the Soviet Union that it would turn into a real market economy. And that did not happen. It became a mafia state. And I I wrote about that a a little more in my previous book, House of Trump, House of Putin. And there are really hundreds of billions of dollars at stake. When you have a mafia state, a kleptocracy and all those oligarchs, you have friends of Putin who uh, control entire industries, the coal industry, the uh, energy industry, the uh, natural gas. Uh, The oligarchs, you know, have 10 billion and up. Uh, They're just enormously wealthy and they're not about to let that go. And Putin keeps them in reign. So that's what's at stake here. You also have hundreds of billions of dollars in flight capital that's illegal money from a lot of that. And it's been putting uh, going back into the United States. uh, And that so you see the entire Republican Party really taken over as if it's the party of regions, which is the political party in Ukraine that is essentially um, a pro-Putin political party. It's astounding. The subtitle of the book is How the KGB Cultivated Donald Trump and Related Tales of Sex, Greed, Power and Treachery. And so it's no surprise that a big portion of this book deals with uh, Jeffrey Epstein and Jelaine Maxwell. How did they play into this? Right. Well, well, you know, I think the Maxwell, uh, the, the Epstein Maxwell operation has been reported largely as a 
sex trafficking yeah. operation, uh, which it was. Uh, but it was also a compromise operation. It was an operation designed uh, to uh, capture the dirty little secrets of the richest and most powerful men in the world. And, and they really were men. And that meant, I mean, I, I think one of the reasons Epstein's maxim for recruiting girls was the younger, the better, because uh, he's doing videos of those sexual activities. And if you want powerful compromise, uh, having sex with an, a minor, with an underage girl, is far more serious offense than just having extramarital sex. Sure. Sure. So so you're saying the KGB also targeted uh, Epstein and his organization, for lack of a better term, and and capitalized on on his relationship with Trump. Absolutely. And, and one of the things I looked into Epstein is where does he get his money? And I I found uh, an Israeli agent who told me uh, he saw Epstein meeting with Robert Maxwell. That's Glenn Maxwell's father, Honor. who is a British press lord who is very, very close to the KGB. And he has the same kind of relationship to the KGB that Donald Trump has. He was mm. they were known as special unofficial contacts. And that meant they would trade favors and they were part of this enormous, uh, uh, really criminal elite that had intelligence ties to uh, to Russia and the Soviet Union before it. Uh, You also see with Epstein in later years that Russian intelligence seems to have used the Epstein operation to insinuate itself into the tech sector. And they had Russian women who were working with Epstein. Uh, one was his uh, publicist for a while. Uh, another ran salons with the most powerful people in, in tech, in technology, in mm. Silicon Valley, at Harvard and MIT and so forth. Uh, Bill Gates was there at various times, Elon Musk. Uh, and they were cultivating these people. And, and we've seen this. Uh, we now have this ongoing story of a massive uh, hacking scandal in which the the Soviet Union has uh, gotten into our technology. Right. Yeah. And that's a current story. So this is all it, it keeps going. Um, so it compromise, which figures pr- prominently in the in the book's title, American compromise. That is the Russian word for um, um, uh, it's, it's compromising <laughs> material, essentially compromising it's material, like blackmail. Exactly. It's extortion, blackmail. And it loses its power immediately if it's revealed. So it's holding something over your head saying, look, we have all there's all these photos of you in compromising positions or we have these financial records that can be devastating to you. It's important that we help you keep them private and not they not be released. And that way, Trump or whomever is indebted to, to the Russians forever. Right. And and throughout uh, the campaign, when we learned of that Michael Steele dossier that figured uh, a lot in the Mueller investigation and thereabouts and, and you know, is still a, a subject of contention, there was the allegation that there was the <laughs> euphemistically known P-tape. Do you know if that exists, if that exists or what other similar pieces of evidence do exist? You know, I don't know about that in particular. I, I know there. I, I, I've talked to people, including Russian monsters, who talk about that. But I tend to think, unless I have it, there's nothing to be done about that. What, what is clear, they have a lot over Trump. Uh, and uh, it'll be really interesting to see how this plays out. I think leading up to January 6th, uh, it, it was clear a train wreck was going to happen one way or the another, but you couldn't really predict when or where or how it would take place. Uh, it was interesting. Recently, Hillary Clinton tweeted uh, that she wondered if uh, if uh, Trump was in touch it was was talking to Vladimir Putin in the days before the January 6th uh, insurrection, because that is right out of Vladimir Putin's playbook. Yeah, and, and, we, and, and there were certainly reports, I mean, widespread reports that QAnon has been supported and fueled by Russia an awful lot. Oh, wow. Now, is there I mean, do you have evidence? Do you have things in the book that investigators and the government and the CIA could use to unearth some of this stuff to fight back against their claims of hoax, as they call it? I I think there's a lot in there, really, and uh, especially uh, 
going back in history. And, uh, you know, I have only the resources a normal reporter would have. I don't have subpoena power or anything. Uh, one of my key sources is an ex-major in the KCB, and he has furnished uh, material to federal authorities. But, of course, we have ongoing wars in uh I mean, Biden is trying to clean it up right now. But Trump was uh, putting all his people in charge of national security. Yeah. And it, it meant there were internal wars. And if if you were in the FBI or CIA and required damning information on Trump, well, what would you do with it uh, in that context? What would you uh, how would you use it? Because uh, you'd put your own career in jeopardy as long as Trump was in, in the driver's seat. So if you're confronted by one of these, um, I don't know what to call them, Russian doubters, <laughs> you know, the, the Glenn Greenwald. And, and I've always been a big fan of Matt Taibbi's. But when he went off on, you know, agreeing that this is a Russia hoax, I, he kind of lost me there. What do you say to those people who, who continue to say, stop with the Russia stuff? Right. Well, I mean, a lot of them, one of them said to me, uh, look, uh, Mueller's failure to come up with anything shows that there was nothing there. I don't think that is the case at all. Uh, you know, everything in my book is footnoted. It's real. Uh, and there are two ways for them to attack me. One is to disprove my information. Uh, and no one has done that th that I know of. And two is to say my argument doesn't doesn't parse that I'm overreaching. Well, to me, this is very much like a, a jigsaw puzzle with a thousand pieces, and I don't have all the answers, but I may have 800 out of a thousand. And when you look at the picture, there's no other conclusion you can reach other than that Trump was cultivated by the Russians. Uh, and this went on over 40 years and he was acting in the interests of Russia, not in the interests of the United States. You know, in fact, I mentioned the picture when you go to the picture section of the book and, and the photos are just incredible. And it's, it's a it's a beautiful section. The picture below the one in the Oval Office is of Trump and Putin in Helsinki when they met. And at that shocking press conference, when Trump basically stood with Putin against United States intelligence agencies, um, that should have been a turning point. But we are we so. Um, divided in this nation that that uh, half of the country is going to go along with the guy who stands with Russia over our intelligence agencies? Well, sadly, that appears to be the case. And it's a lot of it is just shocking to me. And I think you've seen the media in the United States uh, damaged. Uh, I hope it's not irreparable, but people live in completely different worlds and have completely different sort sets of information, or, or I think it's disinformation. Uh, but you've seen Russia fueling it in Facebook again and again. Facebook makes billions of dollars off of uh, promoting becoming a powerful voice of Russian propaganda. I think that's obscene. I think it has to be regulated in some way. Uh, but uh, I mean, the whole QAnon thing is beyond sick and weird. I mean, the, these lizard-brained <laughs> satanic pedophiles, what is going on with that? Uh, but th there you have it in the United States. It's very upsetting. And you point out, as you did just a few minutes ago, Craig Unger, that, you know, th we're, we're just over a year away from the, the midterm elections and the, the Republicans could conceivably take back Congress, control of either or both houses of Congress. Yet you still have a big faction who is siding with this crazy stuff over reality. That's a frightening position to be in. With that in mind, is it, it, it should the Biden administration or the Department of Justice or whoever handles this kind of stuff actually delve into this deeper to to um, expose Trump for being a Russian agent? Do you think that would help set us back on a reasonable course? Uh, I think absolutely. I think it's absolutely necessary, but it has to be done very, very carefully. And I think so. So far, Biden has handled it well. I think he has to be above it all in a way because he wants to promote unity. But uh, what I really liked in his inaugural address was he said that's not, he, he pushed for unity, but he pointed out that is not easy, uh, and it has to. We also have to have truth. 
And uh, if you want one word, uh, that's it. That should be the rallying cry, uh, right. factual reality. Uh, and it seems like the Republicans have lost all touch with it. Oh, without a doubt. Truth. What a concept. The book is American Compromot, How the KGB Cultivated Donald Trump and Related Tales of Sex, Greed, Power and Treachery. It is newly released. Read it. It's by Craig Unger, who you can follow on Twitter at Craig Unger. Craig, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and um, uh, it's great meeting you. Well, thank you, Nicole. I appreciate it. And with that, we come to the end of another edition of the broadcast. We got a busy week ahead, so um, (laughs) strap in. Brad and Desi will be back for all the impeachment action and everything else going on. I'm Nicole Sandler of The Nicole Sandler Show at NicoleSandler.com. Thank you for always welcoming me. Until next time, I'll echo Brad Friedman and say, good luck, world. (laughs) 